This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. We are going to have a very interesting episode discussing evolution of accelerometry processing methods. And we have a great guest for this episode. He is the winner of ICAMPAM Student Award 2022 for the best presentation, Interrelationship between Open Source, Proprietary and Machine Learning Derived Accelerometry Metrics. And he has done his bachelor's and master's in University of Massachusetts, Amherst, and currently our guest is working as a doctoral student studying cardiovascular epidemiology at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, US. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Dr. Chris Moore. Welcome, Chris. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, you've had some amazing guests on here and asked some great questions, so I really appreciate you bringing all this knowledge and insights to this audio format. It's a big improvement from the days when I used to uh, use some software to turn textbooks and papers into audio files you know, with a robot talk. Yeah, I, I have also tried that, so we, we both like the audio form, but it's, it's not very pleasurable to listen to the robot talking. No, especially when I start tries to read a table with all the numbers. It's a little bit messy. Yeah, so you, you said that you are from North Carolina. Was this right? Uh, I am originally from Massachusetts, uh, and I moved to North Carolina about uh, three years ago. Yeah, when I was doing my bachelor's degree, I was as an exchange student in East Carolina, University in in Greenville in North Carolina. Oh wow, great! Yeah, it was interesting. I I applied for the visa and then I got the interview for the visa interview and it was in Helsinki and I was in my hometown and it was like eight hour train drive. So I took the train. I went eight hours in the train. I waited. I was there maybe three hours before I waited and then I got to the desk and the guy showed my passport behind the glass and asked, is this your passport? I was like, yeah. And then he was like looking at me and he said like, yeah, when you go to North Carolina, they will ask you about the barbecue sauces. And I was like, okay. And then he said, all right, this is good. So I left and again, eight hours in the train. And all he said was this barbecue sauce thing. And nobody asked me during the exchange year about the barbecue sauces. Really? We do have some good barbecue sauces, you know, a lot of vinegary, more liquidy type ones. So yeah, it's definitely something North Carolina has down here, but surprised you didn't learn much about it when you were here. Yeah, yeah. So that was long ride for one question about the barbecue sauce. So if, if we talk about your your abstract that you had or your presentation at ICAMPAM, could you tell a little bit more about that? Sure. So the motivation for this abstract was based on how accelerometers were, you know, initially developed in the 1980s. And since that time, studies looking at the relationships between uh, physical behavior from accelerometry and health outcomes largely use activity counts. And there are some limitations of activity counts that they are derived from a proprietary algorithm. And this algorithm differs across devices, then interpreted using device and population specific cut points. So all these factors lead to differences between studies that can be a barrier to harmonizing accelerometer data, uh, for example, cross population surveillance or for pooling data for more generalizable and powerful longitudinal studies or for examining trends across time. So that this is kind of motivated 
And one of the motion motivations behind uh, using raw accelerometer data is that you're getting the raw signal and units of gravity that's going to be the same uh, in theory across all devices. Um, however, since the rise of raw data, there's been a lot of different metrics that are now available for processing the raw data from any device. For example, you have NMO and MAD, a few others that I'll talk about more later. And so with all these new metrics, it creates another you know, potential barrier to harmonizing accelerometer data across studies if different studies are using all these different metrics. Um, so the motivation of, of my presentation, our study, was to look at how these different metrics differ when you're looking at the same, using this, each of these methods for processing data. You're using them for the same data from the same device collected from the same people, but you just use different metrics. What differences does that lead to? And how, how, how was the what's the finding seen? How, how does it differ? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I will mention that uh, I won't go into too much detail on the methods um, because all of my slides are available. They are available on GitHub. My uh, GitHub username is just Chris C. Moore, C-H-R-I-S-C-M-O-O-R-E. Uh, you can find my slides there. But we used data from 100 women from the Women's Health Study. It's just this kind of a preliminary study. I'm just looking at 100 women. Um, and we had data from the Actigraph GT3X+. Plus. They wore it for seven days, sampled at 30 hertz. And we looked at a variety of metrics. We looked at at uh, NMO, uh, which is basically the um, it's the based on the vector magnitude, then mean amplitude deviation and accelerometer activity index, so MAD and AAI, and both of those are based on the variance around the mean. Um, but AAI is normalized to the like the noise that the accelerometer is picking up, um, and then we also looked at the monitor independent movement sub summary or MIMS. Mm. Um, and that's what Haynes has been released in. Um, and that metric tries to standardize across devices because the main difference between devices is their different sampling rates and their different uh, dynamic ranges. Um, so it uses some methods to try to make account for those factors. So those four are going to, I call like single unit summaries. Um, and then we also looked at some metrics based on counts. So we looked at like total counts per day and sedentary time, light low, light high, physical activity, and MVPA, all from counts. Um, and then we also looked at one machine learning um, algorithm, which is the two-level behavior classification algorithm or the TLBC algorithm. Um, and this uses a random forest and a hidden Markov model kind of in these two steps. Uh, to classify uh, each epoch as sitting, standing still, standing, moving, walking, running, or riding in a vehicle. Mm. So we have these, we have count variables, we have four uh, single unit summaries of raw data that are like the open source summaries, and then we have these TLBC algorithm. Um, and then to compare them, we, we looked at the uh, correlations, Spearman correlations, um, so kind of like the non-parametric version of a correlation across, uh, across these metrics. Um, and we also did this looking both at the, at the, at the minute level, at the epoch levels, um, with the like 30 hertz data. We looked at, did at the, at the minute level and at the day level. So kind of looking at these, these different metrics at these different levels. And so overall, looking across all these levels and these metrics, uh, there were the strongest correlations were between the, uh, accelerometer activity index and MIMS. Um, so those were like 0.94 and higher for the Spearman correlations. And then MAD and NMO uh, had relatively strong correlations of 0.65 or higher. But then looking at the count-based variables, when you looked at, you know, how metrics based off of counts compared to these, you know, open source summaries, um, the correlations were, were low. They were with AAI and MIMS, um, and AAI and MIMS, were, again, were very strongly correlated. Total counts correlated with them between 0.38 and 0.43. 
Um, but then counts with uh, MAD and ENMO had correlations of 0.1 to about 0.3. So, you know, there's kind of more uniformity across these open source summary metrics um, and less consistency between counts in these in these summaries. And then the, T- the TLBC classified behaviors had correlations that were about 0.6 for the most part. So those were also, you know, relatively stronger, um, but there's also some differences in how TLBC considers things. It's just looking at one segment of the day, whereas if you look at, you know, the average ENMO in a day, you're kind of looking at all the epochs in a day, whereas, you know, if you're looking at one specific behavior in that day, you know, you're kind of including some information in the in the raw metrics that's not included in the TLBC Mm, yeah, and and so the counts, the correlation was considerably lower. What what do you make out of it? Why why do you think the counts have a lower correlation than the other ones? Yeah, so this is interesting. Um, and recently, uh, Actigraph again, we use Actigraph accelerometers. They did release a report saying what what their algorithm is um, for how they derive counts and. Uh, so the algorithm for driving counts is quite lengthy and somewhat unintuitive. Um, just to give an idea what the process is, mm. uh, you have to convert all the data to 30 hertz. You rescale by a factor of about 0.17.13, uh, and you take the absolute value. Then it, you apply some threshold. So if the value is above this, you make it this value. If, it, if it's below you know, below four, you make it zero. Then you further downsample on low pass filter to 10 hertz, and then you sum across a predefined epoch length. So that's a, you know, just to illustrate, it's a lengthy process. Mm. Uh, and so I I happened to sit with a Actigraph representative when we were at iCampAM. I sat with him for lunch, just happened to sit at his table, and I asked him about this. And he said that this long process was really designed to make counts more comparable with past models of the Actigraph, which mm. is a, certainly a valid reason, right? We want our historic data to be comparable with our modern data. Mm. Um, so we won't be comparable with the past. Um, but in our study, so that's kind of why I think that it wasn't so, wasn't that strongly correlated. Mm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So they have had different versions and they wanted to match it. How, how do you see now that has made sense in the past that they tried to match the older devices but now we have the raw data available the processing power within the device within computers is is considerably more how do you see it should be now where do you think this this field should be taken what should be the future directions yeah. Well, so I guess when it comes to counts, I think, like I said, it's certainly a valid reason to make your counts comparable with past models of it. But in our study, when you look at the correlations between counts and other single unit summaries, they range from, again, about 0.1 to 0.4. And so this might be seen as problematic. Again, there's no consensus on this yet. This is just kind of food for thought. Um, because, for example, if you look at ENMO, which may be the most intuitive metric, right, it's essentially the vector magnitude of the acceleration, it just summarizes the acceleration magnitude and, you know, adjusts for gravity and mm. whatnot. But when you take this long process of deriving counts and it may lead them to no longer provide the same information as the vector magnitude of, of acceleration, that could be seen, you know, as problematic. And again, it's kind of, um, I think this is, you know, a larger point that I've been trying to think about is, you know, what, what do we value when we're trying to choose a metric? Do we value, you know, comparability with the past, because then counts may be, 
you know, a good choice for a metric, but there might be other considerations as well, right? Um, could be consistency with other metrics, which in which case, you know, or with or across consistency across devices, in which case MIMS, right, is kind of used to address that. Um, there could also be the ability to, to discriminate between different behaviors and intensities, mm. which might be different. It's a different consideration. And then there's also the interpretability factor, right? We, right now, we don't really have a great way of interpreting something like NMO, MAD, MIMS without using cut points, which there's some you know limitations of using cut points. Mm. Um, so there's also that interpretability factor. And maybe in that sense, maybe a machine learning method is good where it can classify this as walking. So I guess that's kind of, you know, definitely an area, I guess, of future future research, not only decide like what metric, you know, I think most would agree that we want to have some consistency in the methods used to process and summarize accelerometer data. Um, and it, again, it would prove, improve efforts for harmonizing data for, you know, surveillance and for, you know, pooling data. But I think the first step is really to have a consensus on which methods should be used in a particular context, which first requires creating a consensus on what criteria should be used. Mm -hmm. And again, I listed some considerations that could be considered, but then you have to kind of decide how you want to balance and weigh each of those. And how do you see, if we think physical activity intensity, it's continuous variable from doing nothing to your maximum intensity, right? And then if we apply cut points, we just kind of do chunks that, all right, everything above this is this, for example, for MVPA and everything under it. Does it really make sense when we know that physical activity is continuum? All the intensities basically have some physiological meaning, like even light intensity activity is beneficial for your health. There's some thresholds where you might start recruiting other motor units that they are maybe a little bit different, but in a sense, it's just a continuum. So why do we insist breaking it in small parts when we could actually have the whole kind of histogram maybe of it that we could have the intensity all the way to the maximum like yeah i think it's i think it really comes down to the application and the interpretability i think it's very nice to be able to say 150 minutes per week of mvpa right that's a short message and i think when you're trying to you're trying to you know reduce the dimensionality of this you know very complicated behavior physical activity is very complicated and when we're trying to study it in epidemiology, I need like, you know, a few columns in my spreadsheet that I can use to create a model. Mm. Yeah, I, th I think there is a push for, you know, moving beyond just applying cut points, because there's also other issues like what about relative intensity? Isn't that important when we're just making these absolute intensity cut points? Um, but then it becomes a lot harder to calibrate relative intensity. So I think there are some de definitely some limitations with using cut points, but it's kind of like, you know, what's the end goal and what's the impact? We might have some limitations in our measurement as far as trying to categorize, put, the, put this complicated behavior into boxes. But if in the end that creates a reasonable public health message, then that might be, you know, it's, it's that cost benefit analysis of how, what you want to do mm. um, with that, which is one of the reasons why I think some of the, the machine learning methods are promising because it doesn't, you know, classifies the behavior more exactly how it is. It's, it was walking or it was, mm. you know, moving. Um, but those also kind of need to be, you know, in, developed in certain populations that are very population specific as well. And, you know, you definitely can't classify all behaviors. You have to put them in general categories. So, yeah, I think I think it is that just that cost benefit of how complex you want to measure things and what and how they're usable they are and what message that creates as far as when you're trying to put that in guidelines. Yeah, I fully understand that. But let's say that we have the MVPA that you put together moderate and vigorous intensity, for example, even though we know that vigorous 
is has much more effects than the moderate so i'm just questioning does it make sense to chunk it together that could it be in the in the message differently and also that if somebody's doing just below moderate intensity so it doesn't count moderate vigorous intensity so kind of where is the threshold you might drop a lot of people on the on the each side depending on that if we want to just make one threshold there yeah, and I think public health guidelines have largely focused on volume, which is why we do, you know, multiply vigorous by, you know, two to get at met minutes. We do, you know, typically you do three mets for moderate and six mets for vigorous, and you can use that those factors to kind of get overall volume and assess guidelines. Um, but I think the effects of individual intensity, regardless of volume, but, you know, for example, when you're looking at fitness, yeah, I think those are definitely some, like, some areas that have, they're not may not be as parsed out in the in the literature exactly how each, you know, vigorous intensity without considering volume, the intensity itself kind of gets at your health outcomes. Um, I, there has been some research about this. I've seen particularly in the steps literature, um, a lot of could because when you look at total steps per day, um, that, that's regardless of intensity, and that's just volume. Um, so uh, studies have, are looking at um, I know Pedro St. Maurice has done this and Iman Lee has a paper that does this where they control for uh, volume and just look at the intensity of steps. So being above 40 steps per minute, being above a certain threshold of steps per minute. And for the most part, they have not seen effects with the outcomes they've looked at. I think it's prim primarily been all cause mortality. But again, then you're looking at, you know, a certain intensity and its effects on a particular outcome. For most sedentary behavior and physical activity researchers, Collecting the research data is one of the most frustrating steps of a project, especially as inefficient data collection steals too much of your precious time, causes unnecessary stress and hassle, and can easily derail progress of your project. This is why we devised a revolutionary new way to collect data, introducing Fibian Sense Motion, the beginning of a new era. Fibian Sense Motion is a cutting-edge, next-generation system that allows you to easily and remotely collect, store, and manage data. Our solution features a tiny, waterproof device that captures the sedentary behavior and physical activity data, a mobile app for automatic uploading of the data from the device, and a cloud service for managing the data. Even better, all collected data is GDPR compliant and you have access to automatically analyzed variables of activity types and raw 3-axis accelerometer data. Don't compromise on the quality of your research or the project timeframes. Discover the convenience and power behind our solution at sense.fibian.com. That is sens.fibian.com. Fibian, created by researchers for researchers. Yeah, it's interesting when you're doing epidemiology to see it from your perspective. How is it collecting the data? How, how do you see, is there anything we can do that the accelerometers are actually just defining the kind of absolute intensity, not relative to the fitness level of the person, like heart rate is more related to the fitness level of the person and probably that is confounding when we try to look the effects because for someone really unfit even light intensity might be if somebody has been in bed rest 
light intensity might be even maximum for them and vice versa if somebody's really fit like moderate intensity might be kind of nothing physiologically so is there anything we can do in relation to absolute versus relative intensity yeah uh i think relative intensity is challenging when it comes to like large public health guidelines that are meant to cater to a lot of like the entire population. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert in this area and I'm only a student in epidemiology, so I don't represent the entire field. Uh, it's, it's difficult because when you say what people wonder what moderate intensity is, right. Mm. And so I can say a brisk walk, mm. right. When I'm talking about moderate, but for someone very fit, that may not be moderate intensity. So then how do I describe moderate intensity to them? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the challenging part of it. Um, of course, if you want to look at intensity, you'd have to, you know, get some estimate of, you know, the fitness level of each individual you're studying, um, or use a some type of equation to calibrate it. I know, uh, my advisor, Kelly Evenson has done work in older women, um, where she uses like a, a, a lower met value for, like she uses like 3.0 instead of 3.5, um, uh, for the basal metabolic rate to count for things in older women, how they're, you know, not as metabolically active, which is not exactly relative intensity, but it's still trying, trying to get at that population specificity. So I, that's the, that's kind of the, the methodological side of it and the measurement um, that you kind of could do that. But I think it's challenge, like I said, a challenging in public health and trying to create these guidelines. Um, I think it has a lot of use more when you're working one on one. If you're you know having working with a medical practitioner, mm. um, I think you know they probably should be using relative intensity. Well, they they really should be. Mm. Um, but that's getting more at the individual basis where you have the ability to cater to individuals as, as compared to like the public health population level where you're not going to be perfect. That's kind of the thing about public health. You're not going to always be perfect, but you're just trying to do the best you can mm-hmm. um, to cater to a very wide audience. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So if I go a little bit back, we have different methods of analyzing uh data we can have the device in different location how should we go forward that we actually have harmonized data that we actually use the right uh, device location right analysis method for right context how should we do this that we can kind of simplify and harmonize the the process yeah so you're saying given that other thing, other areas of the measurement protocols are harmonized. And once we kind of get, reach that, like what the next step after that? Yeah, like how, like this, there's many ways of measuring data, many ways of analyzing. How would we, how, how could we get the studies more comparable and that the studies are actually using the best method for their research question? How could we, how could we take this kind of further? I think much of the need is really for, you know, consensus and for guidelines. Um, and I think from what I've seen, and I've been kind of been thinking about this a lot, is um, that just the need for deciding what criteria we want to use. Again, there's criteria, like I mentioned before, there's con- criteria like consistency across devices, consistency with past data, uh, ability to discriminate behaviors, intensities, and their interpretability factors like that. And so I guess it, I think at first would be helpful to be, again, decide on those criteria and how much we want to weigh each of them because they're not always going to come along with each other. At least, you know, for example, mm. comparability with past data, a lot involved counts, um, which definitely in- interferes with some of the other ideas. Um, so I think the first step is kind of to be deciding on the, on the criteria 
to you to evaluate these and then to kind of have a consensus on which decisions we should make um, and really trying to evaluate the metrics that we already have as well. Um, I think that's kind of what my focus has been on. I'm not really that so interested in developing any new methods for processing data. I'm really interested in seeing the metrics we already have and comparing them. Uh, I think there's more research needed in that area. For example, I, I also plan to examine how they each of these different metrics relate to health outcomes to kind of help also get at differences, but a different side of the differences between these metrics. Mm. Um, they're more their impact on the actual relationships with health outcomes. And so I think those are some kind of the, some of the, the, the first few steps is like evaluating the metrics we have now, deciding which ones we should be using. Yeah, that makes sense. And about the harmonization, this uh, we have been publishing in the podcast, the ProPass event uh, lectures. So if anyone is interested about harmonization, there's quite many episodes, which I, I recommend to listen. And you, you said this health outcomes, how would you do that? What kind of research designs you need to need to make that you find best that how each variable is related to health outcomes? Yeah, so I guess I'm, I'm not so much getting at, getting at which one is best. I don't think necessarily that's kind of, again, that's kind of a difficult to evaluate because you have to decide on what criteria you want to use first. Um, but I think at least illustrating the differences um, and seeing, for example, if we know that physical activity relates to all-cause mortality, mm. if we find that physical activity does not relate to all-cause mortality where for some type of metric, you know, that might be a red flag. Um, and also just seeing the differences they lead to as far as, um, you know, the strength of the relationship and the amount of like something like MVPA they would lead to uh, or lead to the rec recommendation for, um, things like that. So I guess the idea would be more to just illustrate the differences between them just to say that these exist or they don't exist. And that may be some way to inform you know, future consensus about which is best. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting also to challenge that what kind of things we could measure. For example, we know that bone health is affected more about just few high intensity accelerations of the body or on the bones, impacts on the bones. Do you know if anyone has, for example, looked the correlation, you could probably see from the waist-worn accelerometer, maybe something also in wrist-worn, definitely from thigh-worn device, that how does it relate, for example, to the bone strength or some other variables of bone health? Yeah, so I have not really seen much about that area. It's not really, I, I've been focusing more on cardiovascular yeah. stuff. So sorry, I haven't really seen much about that. Not, not a topic I want to speak on because I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. But I know that is, that is something that has been pretty well established and included in guidelines. Yeah. We could move also to the survival analysis in a moment. Do you have anything to add into this discussion? Yeah. Uh, I was just also wanted to comment on the uh, ProPass thing you mentioned. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that is, uh, so they present, they had a presentation at ICAMPAM as well. Um, and I, I, I saw their talk and I think they are really addressing a big challenge and that's about um, harmonization and also data sharing. So they allow different studies to submit their data to them and they'll host, help them host it and provide a lot of the back end as far as security, um, you know, server space and stuff that comes along with that. And I think that's been a very big challenge um, when it comes to harmonizations that we don't have any really, 
we don't have a ton, we don't have a ton of large data sets, large raw data sets that are available for anybody to use and to use when developing algorithms. For example, we're not developing the same machine learning methods on the same data set, which is pretty standard in other fields that you have standard data sets you use for applying a machine learning model. And we do them all in different data sets. But it's challenging to data sharing. Um, there's, you know, the ethical concerns for participants. There's the data security side. There's concerns by researchers for allowing anybody to publish using their data. And there's also maintaining a network and storage space. Uh, for example, I work with the Women's Health Study. It's about 17,000 women with a week-long accelerometer wear. And so that raw data comes to about six and a half terabytes of data, which is not, you know, may not be cheap to host, let alone for people to be, you know, pulling that data off of your server. That's a lot of traffic that you have to maintain. So I think that's really a, a difficult area that, you know, like I said, something like ProPass is doing a great job to kind of get at. And then also just some other thing, ideas on the data science side of things, um, making code. One thing I've, I've seen is uh, like a need for making uh, open source code more robust and easy to use for data scientists. I think there's an example of some great progress is GGIR. Um, mm. And again, he's, I don't know if you've had Hiram Miguelos on here as well. They've done a great job of creating a, like a very dedicated team who does a lot of continuous updates and improvements to ensure code is robust and it's well documented. But there are some other code that I've seen out there from like that have been included in some papers that is not as well maintained. You know, it's kind of studies will, you know, publish their code and then let it be. Um, and also kind of on that same similar, similar note is errors in code and checking for errors in code. I think that's also something that's could use some addressing from my experience. I'm not going to, you know, throw any, any names out there or anything like that, but uh, a need for, you know, for second secondary coding and for replication on people's code, um, especially if you're going to be making your code open source, making sure, you know, that's part of open source and why it's beneficial is anybody can find it, but then also addressing those concerns. And so that's something uh, my advisor, Kelly Evenson, has, you know, made sure to include in her current R01 grant is we're doing replication of all, all of each other's code. So you have one person who does the primary coding and after they're done, somebody else does on their own, completely independently, tries to write the same code and get the same result. And you find a lot of errors in that way. And so it could, because everybody makes errors when they're coding, it's, it's, it's natural, it happens. But uh, I think being mindful of that, not just trying to get the code out there, but also making sure it works and it's, you know. Mm, yeah, so, so keeping the open source code well-documented, error checking, how could we do it? Because usually, Many researchers, they have just one project, they need to get it done, get the results published and so on. What should be the kind of uh, institute or person or whatever it would be? Who would take care of it that we keep the code well maintained, let's say that way? Yeah, I think that's difficult. I think as part of open sources, it's not centralized. It's open to anybody to work with. Um, it kind of comes down to researchers themselves. You know, I think there's... It's kind of when you publish a paper, for example, you should be making sure that there are not errors in your analysis, errors in what you do. And so that's kind of somewhat of an obligation to, to make, ensure that stuff. I think it's just needing to acknowledge the, that, that that is an issue and that is the potential for concern. I don't think anyone's being malicious or just trying to be, you know, not being totally considerate. But I think just acknowledging that there can be errors in their code, even after that some, the same person has seen it a few times. I don't know if you've ever you know, written something and you find it, you've looked at it, you know, five times and there's a spelling mistake right in the middle it's very obvious one but you just you know your eyes go right over it right because mm. you know what it's supposed to say and so it's the same idea with coding i think it's also having that replication of your code with, with a second person is something that's very valuable to have 
And so I think that kind of does come down to researchers themselves. And then as far as the maintenance, that is a trickier area. Um, again, takes a very dedicated team and a lot of work. And I'm not sure how you go about establishing that. Probably ask Dr. Van Heese. He has a much better idea about that side of things. But I think it is some, just an example of, of he, he does provide a good example of what's possible and what can be done. Mm. And if, if I ask you, you mentioned also the machine learning that in many other fields it's being done. Um, I'm not an expert on machine learning, but do you need like annotated data? Do we need to know what's in there in the data? For example, if we want to detect sedentary behavior and, for example, running or cycling, do we need to have a reference measured for example video observation that we know or can we just do good machine learning from data that is just accelerometer data even we don't know what's happening in the data yeah so the studies i've seen create machine learning methods like that have used either like video recording like a video strapped to the chest to be able to get at like you know is it standing is it walking is it you know riding in a car things like that um that's one approach there's also uh methods that have that just do like if somebody's like sitting or if they're you know standing or standing moving that they can use a active pal for that um because active pal is great at detecting posture um so those kind of those depends at what level you want to get but those are two approaches i have seen um that are kind of required to have some way of validating your algorithm Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.